begin with Song of Solomon 1. This will be a study of the book of Song of Solomon. And one of the happiest things that you can do if you are a child of a mother, and some of you I know may have some doubt, but if you are, uh, is to give your um, mother a uh, happy home that you build. And with that, we want to say Happy Mother's Day. We also want to do all that we can for them and, uh, frankly, well, I guess the whole world in building great marriages. Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 1. It is terribly, critically, urgently important that we get marriage right. And there are a number of reasons why. And that is, number one, uh, the Scripture uses marriage to illustrate Christ and the church in Ephesians chapter 5. Failure in marriage undermines the gospel. Success at marriage advances the gospel of Christ and gives those who don't know the Lord uh, an opportunity to understand the gospel more and more. Second, good marriages retain their kids for church. Marriages that struggle are a factor in kids that drop out of church after high school. But marriages that succeed are a factor in retaining kids after high school graduation. Third, effective marriages uh, elevate and increase the well-being of children in every statistical category. When you've got a marriage that works, a child is more likely to do well in school, uh, better able to fight temptation of drugs and sex before marriage, less likely to become a pregnant teen, and on and on it goes. Fourth, the well-being of adults. An effective and strong marriage uh, helps every category of well-being when it comes to adults. Everything from mental health to weight gain and life expectancy. And then fifth, marriage is something that God created in the Garden of Eden. And God has extended the blessings of marriage from the Garden of Eden into this life. And so marriage and family are to be a reminder of that blessedness in Eden. It is a priority, therefore, with God. In fact, God performed the first wedding ceremony and he gave the first bride away. Marriage is important to God. And so it comes as no surprise to me that there is a whole book in the Bible, Song of Solomon, dedicated to this one subject. Now, commentators through the years have struggled with what exactly to do with the Song of Solomon. Uh, it is robust, it is intense, it is in a righteous and appropriate way, very sensual. And so many have tried to allegorize Song of Solomon and say it represents Christ in the church or God in Israel. Well, there may be some applications that can come from that, but folks, I, I just believe in taking it in a straightforward manner. It is about marriage. Uh, you find the first couple of chapters, some dating and romancing that takes place, and then the marriage happens. It's consummated somewhere in chapter 3, and then it continues on through the development of a marriage all the way to chapter 8. The Song of Solomon is a book about marriage articulated with Hebrew poetry. And so God has dedicated an entire book of the Bible to this Edenic or Garden of Eden blessing that is called marriage. Marriages then that get it right, start right. And that's where Song of Solomon begins. Uh, Solomon and the Shulamite woman. We don't know her name. She's anonymous, but she's from Shulamite. We call her the Shulamite woman. They are courting and they are dating in the first couple of chapters of Song of Solomon. And they've got a blissful marriage throughout the balance of the book. And uh, the point is, they start their marriage right 
by dating right or courting right. We're not entirely sure about all the particulars of Hebrew dating and courtship, but it's rather obvious the first couple of chapters are not married. But what happens here is that they get started right. It's led me to repeat and repeat often, if it fizzles in the finish, it was probably at fault from the first. And that's often true with marriages that don't do well. And all the marriage counseling I've done and all of the conversations I've had, usually marriages that fail in divorce had something identifiable at the very beginning in the dating relationship that uh, frankly was a ticking time bomb and it went off somewhere in the marriage relationship. Usually it circulated around immaturity, difficult relationships with parents or something like that. But I would say on the other end, that marriages, that marriages that uh, win to the end are marriages that exalt character from the beginning. And in Song of Solomon, chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 7, Solomon and the Shulamite woman demonstrated how character starts a marital relationship right. And if a marriage then flourishes to the finish, it's usually because character was fine from the first. And what I want to do to surface this this morning is to ask some questions about character of someone that, um, that a single may be dating, may possibly have their eyes on. But let me back up to the larger subject here. When it comes to determining God's will for a spouse or God's will really in anything, there's something of a process and there are three big bold stages to it. One, you simply surrender to God. And you make a commitment, God, whatever you want me to do, I will do, and I surrender all now. I surrender all, I surrender now. Whatever decision you've got to make. And then, after that, you move into the second stage. And that is you get very practical, and you start examining and evaluating every detail. You list pros and cons, at least mentally, and you go through and you know what you're getting into. When marriage, you enter with both eyes open. You continue a good marriage with one eye closed, but you don't close an eye till after the wedding. Oh no, there's some that just close their eyes from the very beginning, just grateful somebody would love them. No, we don't do that either. But you get very, very practical in the second stage, and you know what you're getting into. And one of the best ways to do that is to listen to what other people have to say. The third is you look for a sense of peace of God's direction. There are going to be pros and cons with everything that comes up. I usually have a tendency to list more cons than, um, uh, than pros. That's just how I look at things. And when I'm trying to make a decision, I list more negatives than positives. That may be the case with you. May very well be. But then you look for the peace of God and it becomes the referee or umpire to tell you whether you're inbounds or out of bounds according to Colossians 3.15. Well, with that, we're going to be very practical in that second stage here. I'm going to assume that you're going to surrender to marry whoever God wants you to marry. And I'm going to assume that you're going to let the peace of Christ rule in your heart to be the referee or umpire at the very end. I want to get to that second stage of being very intensely practical with some questions. The first question is, what about the person's maturity? Chapter 1, verse 3. Let's begin in verse 1, actually. The song of songs, the best of songs of all that Solomon wrote, and this is the only one we have recorded, by the way, which is Solomon's. Now, here's the Shulamite woman. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Well, I hear that every day. For your love is better than wine. 
Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, therefore the virgins or maidens love you. Draw me away, is what she says. I, I find something rather interesting here. He says, she says, the fragrance of your good ointments. It has stirred her heart that he smells and looks right. And he does so because his name is ointment or fragrance poured forth. His character, his name, is much like the fragrance, the cologne that he happens to wear. I'm quite impressed that this young man knows how to clean up. What a remarkable step forward for half the human race we call men and males. This is what he does. Um, I, I don't know what kind of fragrance or cologne he's wearing, maybe Hebrew number five, but he cleaned himself up and presented himself appropriately to this young lady. Now, before taking care of marriage and family business, the person in whom you're interested must take care of himself or herself first. Before taking care of a marriage and family business, they've got to take care of their own business as well. So you've got to ask some questions then about maturity. They need to have come to the point where they are mature enough to take care of their business. How are they doing in school? Do they really care? Consistently, what's the condition of their car and their personal hygiene? How do they spend their time? What about their walk with God? Now, I have to tell you, one of the most maddening things in the world for people at my stage of life is to see these uh, sweet young ladies or these fine young men find a rescue case. They've got someone that is profoundly immature. They fall head over heels in love with them, and they've got to fix them and compensate for their immaturity by stepping in and trying to fix someone else. I mean, I've known of young ladies with very immature young men who keep their checkbook and they're not even married. And they um, call them up to remind them of appointments and they're not even married. Are you people hearing me? They're not married. And already she's having to act not like a wife, but like the mother of a seven-year-old. You see, may I say to you, before God, you have no business dating or marrying an immature person. Until that person matures, that person can stay single. You stay away. It's not your job to mature him or her through dating or marriage. Maybe some professional counseling or maybe some chastisement or something. You can influence them that way. But dating and marriage is not the place to grow someone up. Second, what about this person's adversities? Look at chapter 1, verse um, Five, the Shulamite woman says of herself, I'm dark, but I'm lovely. Now, she was tanned. And most women in that day that were dignified and refined and that were beautiful were not tanned. They stayed inside, they covered themselves. And like many of our Asian friends in the uh, Asian countries, they worked hard to keep their skin very, very light. Uh, they weren't the kind to sunbathe. But she explains that she's a farm girl in verse 6, and she had to work outside. And she was made to, and because of that, she had tanned her skin. 
It's not something you did back then. Nevertheless, she still looks at herself and she says, I may be darkened, I may be tanned, but I'm still lovely. She handled the adversity that put her into the field with grace. Look with me in verse number six. So don't look upon me because I'm dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. and They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I've not kept. I kept the vineyards of our family farm, but I wasn't able to take care of my own vineyard, my own beauty, because of this adversity. The question then is, how does this person handle adversity? Adversity shapes and defines most people. You find someone that's been wounded. You find someone that's struggled and had a difficult time. You find someone then that's had an opportunity to mature or to go backwards or get stuck in bitterness or in life. How has this person then navigated adversity? Has it made them bitter or has it made this person better? How does this person respond to drama with friends? How does this person respond to drama in family? Let me give you an example. Let's say, fellas, you um, are interested in a girl who uh, has got a difficult father uh, and she doesn't respect him and maybe he doesn't deserve it for one reason or another. His moral behavior, he's addicted to something, he won't get any help, uh, maybe he's loud and abusive. But let's say that the one decent thing in his life is that he likes NASCAR. And he uh, spends Saturdays watching NASCAR. However, because they disrespect him in the home, they disrespect everything about him and therefore disrespect NASCAR. Now, who in the world could ever do that? I know you're confused by that, but let's just say that's the case. You start dating and you go by one day and want to sit down with her dad and watch NASCAR and she falls to pieces over it because you happen to like NASCAR. And all of a sudden, she starts questioning who and what you are because of NASCAR. Well, all you're trying to do is build a relationship with her dad. You see, here's the point. The problem is the dad and his immaturity or his sinfulness or his addiction or his abuse. The problem is not with NASCAR. And the person that has not navigated adversity well is not able to tell the difference between the two. What, is, what you have there is blind anger and blind bitterness to one thing that is irrelevant to it all. Let, let me put it to you this way. Uh, it's like Mark Twain said, and I've used this before, but this is very applicable here. A cat that sits on a hot stove will never sit on a hot stove again, nor a cold one. You understand? The cat becomes completely prejudiced towards all stoves when it was a hot stove that burned it, not a cold one. So what do you do if a cold stove is the only place to sit if you're a cat? Well, that's what happens. So often people are that way. They do not identify because of immaturity. They, they've not worked through this bitterness and difficulty. They end up identifying irrelevant issues as the problem. And let me say to you, that will eventually surface in most marriages and become a point of contention. You need to marry somebody who has worked through adversity and done so wisely. But there's a third question. What about this person's authorities? Now, it appears to me 
that this young woman had a father that was absent or that he had passed away. Because the brothers are controlling the field in verse 6. Apparently they're running the farm. Otherwise, if dad were around, he would be running it. So she says, do not look upon me because I'm dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Even though it was terribly unfortunate that she happened to be in the vineyard and having to work there, she did it anyway. She submitted to the authority in the home. And that day, the older brother would become the head of the household. Life is defined by how a person submits to authorities. And so the person that interests you, how does that person interact with the boss? How does that person interact with the law? What about the rules of a game or organization? I'll tell you, it takes mulligans on the golf course. It may take mulligans in other areas of life. How does this person relate to the authority of Jesus Christ? How does this person relate to the teaching of the Word of God? How does this person respond to other people's insights and counsel when someone has a serious talk with him or with her? How does this, how does this person have a relationship with the scripture? What, what does a person do with the sermon? Well, what does this person do with the Bible? A rebellious person who will not be taught will ignite wars in the home, will make them worse, will never know stability, and is not the kind of person that can build a peaceful, stable home. But a person that is submitted to the authority of God in all of its manifestations will enjoy the blessing of God. So what about the person's maturity, uh, adversities, authorities? And then fourth, what about the person's responsibilities? Now Solomon is the young man who is the subject here. Now who is Solomon? Well, Solomon began with a birth in the royal court of King David. That's who Solomon is. The most famous Hebrew monarch of all. So famous that Jesus Christ would be called what? The son of David. That's how exalted David is. And David is mentioned in the Bible almost as often after his death as before his death. And this is the home into which Solomon was born, and this is what he came up in. So he came up in the royal court, surrounded by princes and princesses. He was surrounded by royalty. He was surrounded by extravagance and splendor, all of the accoutrements that would come upon the court of the Hebrew monarch, the most powerful man in Israel's history. And yet, look what his daddy makes him do in verses 7 and 8. Tell me of whom I love, where you feed your flock, she says to him, and where you make it rest at noon, for why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? And they go on and respond to her. If you don't know, affairs to women, follow the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats besides the shepherd's tents. Well, what is it then that this Solomon is doing? Is Solomon out by the pool while everyone else is work? No. Solomon is at work in the shepherd's field just like his father was at this age. In other words, David was wise. Now, David made some mistakes with his children. The study of 2 Samuel will make that very clear. But one mistake David did not make is that he didn't let them be lazy. David put them to work. And that is precisely what Solomon is doing here. 
uh, and that is he is making Solomon responsible. One essential quality of someone safe to marry is that this person makes a commitment and takes responsibility for it. How does this person do with school assignments? What about jobs he or she has held? What about the major at the university? What about church membership? What about friends? What about family? One pastor wrote on this subject, if you find someone who is rootless, always looking for better than, better job, better group of friends, better church, better hobby, better whatever, you should be extremely cautious. The person that is safe to marry is the person that can take responsibility, make a commitment, and stay with it to the very end. A fifth question. What about this person's transparency? What about this person's transparency? Who is this person in private, and can that person afford to reveal his or her private life in public? Are you familiar with the television show from years ago entitled Caught on Camera? There's one episode, I'm sorry not to be delicate here, but one episode where one man relieves himself in a coffee pot made for co-workers. One where a cook spits in a meal and one where a woman threw a puppy across the room thinking no one was looking at all. When you read of the interaction between Solomon and the Shulamite woman in private, from verse 9 to chapter 2, verse 6, what you find is that they have a private life that is worthy to be revealed in public. In fact, it is so much so, it finds its, pay, it finds its way onto the pages of Scripture. Now look at verse number 9. Now th th This is kind of a tricky passage. It's Hebrew poetry. It's from several thousand years ago. It might not quite work in detail and specifics today without explanation. Especially chapter 1, verse 9. Okay? Especially chapter 1, verse 9. Now chapter 1, verse 13, which I shall read, is not a sexual reference. It's a reference about location. There are, however, sexual references in Song of Solomon and Proverbs. Be very tasteful how we deal with it. And when we get to verse 13, I'm going to have staff come up and read it. But anyway, chapter 1, verse 9. Now, I don't want them to feel left out. Chapter 1, verse 9. Here's what Solomon says. Now, this is kind of maybe, I don't know, there may be some boyhood, young manhood naivete here. But verse 9, he says, I compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. In other words, you remind me of my horses. Well, now that was a very honorable thing to say about her. It really was. Solomon had the best of horses. The king's court had the best of horses anywhere. And the kind that would be attached to Pharaoh's chariots, which happened to be a gift of the court, would be the finest in all the earth, quite frankly. Now, I picked up on that, and I translated that when I was a young man and told my dear bride what I thought about her based on this text. And I looked at her, and in those days, I played a lot of basketball, and I said, Honey, you're better than a three-point play. Okay, now listen, that was good. I need to hear more from you. I'm being entirely transparent with my affections. You, you people look at me like i got a snake on my head. Well, there, there may be something there that you... In other words, he is entirely transparent with his heart for this girl. 
Then he goes on in verse 10. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your necks with chains of gold. And then there's a chorus that responds, we will make your ornaments of gold with studs of silver. And then she says, while the king's at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of Engedi. Oh, behold, you're fair, my love. Behold, you're fair. You're, you have dove's eyes. You are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Our bed, and they're probably outside. This is probably a forest scene, and metaphorically, bed or couch is green. And the beams of our house are cedar, and the rafters of fir. Well, I'm just merely, this is kind of a self-criticism she has of herself in verse 1 of chapter 2, despite what the hymn says. Uh, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Or to put it another way, I'm really nothing but a common rose of Sharon and nothing but a common lily of the valleys. He says, well, like a lily among thorns, so was my beloved among the daughters. And she says of him, I'm an apple tree among the trees of the woods. Or she says of him, like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight. His fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with cakes of raisins. Refresh me with apples. I am lovesick, she says. I hear that every day, too. <laughs> there is a wonderful, delicious, energetic transparency here between the two of them. And this is what takes place between the two of them in private. They are ready to meet one another's emotional needs as much as another human being can. Now, no human can meet all of your needs. And please don't expect that of the person you marry. There are some needs only God can meet. And, and we shouldn't turn or expect from our spouses that they have the strength of God. No one can do that. But they are ready to meet emotional needs verbally as much as they possibly can. And their ability to do that depends in large part upon another unseen private thing. Something that is something of a mystery oftentimes when two people marry. And that is their own parents' marriage. One thing I want to encourage you to look at seriously when you're contemplating someone to date and marry and to make it as transparent as you possibly can is their own parents' marriage. Let me tell you what will happen. There is simply a lot of feeling and acting and thoughtless routine action in marriage. Not bad necessarily. But we get very busy and we don't contemplate every word we don't contemplate every action or decision. We're in too much of a hurry. Or we assume that a course of action is right. In those moments, which I would say probably is 90% of life in a marriage and family, what your spouse, your future spouse will do unconsciously is that your future spouse will unconsciously reproduce his or her own parents' marriage into yours. In other words, that's what they will do when they marry. And that, that's pretty normal. That's pretty natural. Now, quite frankly, 
That's good news for a lot of people. It really is. There are a lot of you that really hope that you reproduce your parents' marriage in your own marriage. You really want that. And I applaud you. I applaud your parents too. Today might be a good day to thank them. But then for some of you, that, that could be tragic, and I understand that, and I sympathize. For most of us, on a scale, it's somewhere in between. But here's what has to happen. I'm not saying that you should never marry somebody or date anyone from a troubled home. I'm not saying that. That would wipe out a lot of great candidates for marriage. But what I am saying is that if you do marry someone from a troubled home whose parents had a troubled marriage, then you need to make sure that that person has given himself or herself to significant growth in Christ, professional counseling if necessary. Because unconsciously, that person will seek to reproduce the language patterns, the thought patterns, the decision-making patterns, the relationship patterns, the parenting patterns. He or she came up with in home, and they'll do it unconsciously. And it will be a force. It's like turning a river the other direction. You can do it. But man, you need some big backhoes and a lot of work in several years, you see. So I'm not saying don't marry someone from a troubled home. What I am saying is that if that person comes from a troubled home, before I do is ever said, that person needs to give himself or herself to some significant growth in Christ and probably some radical change. And I'll tell you, if you rush that marriage and rush that wedding date without doing this, that will happen eventually when probably there are kids involved and one of you has one foot out the door. Transparency. But the fifth and final question I want to pose this morning is what about this person's morality? Chapter 2, verse 7 reminds me of the book I read when I was in youth ministry entitled Too Close, Too Soon. Dating couples can get too physical too soon and not help the relationship but hinder it. Sexual involvement before marriage and even heavy petting, if I can put it that way. Is that too old a term? Don't tell me, you shouldn't know. But too much and too intense physical involvement before marriage hinders the growth in a relationship. It doesn't help it. And this is what she is urging in chapter 2, verse 7. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and by the does of the field. And I have no idea what she means there. I'm sorry. I'm clueless when it comes to that. But I do know what she means here, and this is repeated at least three times, four times throughout the book. Do not stir up or awaken sexual love until it pleases, until the right time. What about this person's commitment to God's moral standards? I want to make it real clear to you that when it comes to dating, romance, Marriage and true love, if I can state that. The culture has dismissed God's standards, but God never did. Let me give you a real quick primer on moral standards. Let me tell you why we stand where we do as the Christian church. 
if no one's ever explained it to you, on moral standards, especially sexual standards. This is why we, not only do we not believe in gay marriage, frankly, staff and I have been saying no to a lot of heterosexual marriages through our ministry. Uh, some fellow called A.B. Sawyer a few years ago and asked him on Monday if he'd marry him on Friday. A.B. said, no, we do premarital counseling here. It takes a while. He said, by the way, how many marriages does this make for you? He said, this will be number six, but I think I'll get it right this time. I will tell you, he and the girl he was looking at marrying were way too optimistic. So we have a history of saying no to heterosexual marriage as well. But that's why we say no to some heterosexual marriages and all gay marriages. This is why we do not believe that sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman married to one another is appropriate, before marriage or during marriage. And there's a reason why. One, creation. God didn't create you that way. There is actually mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical breakdown in the bodies, and minds, and souls, and relationships of those who engage in sex outside of God's standard. You weren't created that way. You weren't meant to handle the stress. Your soul wasn't meant to get involved like that. By the way, when, when singles date and they become involved sexually and they never marry, they break up, the kind of rip that happens in their souls is comparable to what happens to people when they're divorced. Because what's happened in the sexual experience is that because you're created as God created you, you are made one flesh. And then by breaking up, you rip that apart like a divorce. You weren't made for that. And it makes it difficult to be committed to the person to whom you are to be married one day. By the way, let me just make it real clear. You will break up with every person you date except the person you marry. So don't get sexually involved. You weren't made that way. Second, Christ. Jesus Christ was pure. He was single his whole life and never involved himself sexually with anyone. Not, not only that, but Jesus Christ also confirmed what the Bible teaches about morality. He elevated that and said, don't even set aside Old Testament moral law. And then he died for sexual sin. So there's good news and there's hope for you if you have uh, violated God's standard. He loves you. He doesn't love you any less because you've messed up. He wouldn't love you anymore if you had done it right. He loves you as intensely and strongly as ever before. So there's hope for forgiveness. You can be forgiven and he can restore you because Jesus bled and rose again. That's good news. But the third thing is uh, not only creation in Christ, but conclusion. At the conclusion of life, it's appointed unto man once to die and after this comes the judgment. And so all the things we've done in the past will meet us at the judgment bar of God. It will come up there. And we'll be evaluated on that basis. If we don't know Christ as Savior, that will be a part of consigning us and our sentence to hell. If you do know Christ as Savior, it will mean the loss of reward that God has planned for you. So you have to understand, I know the secular world thinks one thing. I don't believe, frankly, that there is any such thing as secularism. It's a myth. Because you cannot rid yourself of the fact that God created you. You cannot rid the world and the reality of Jesus Christ, and you cannot rid yourself of the conclusion at the judgment. Secularism is a myth. So I know people don't, may not agree with that, but we do, and this is why we live and think the way that we think. Now, that's a primer on Christian morality. It's rooted in creation, Christ, and the conclusion of judgment.
So what we find here is that we find the Shulamite woman, without thinking too much about it, she advocates that and says, do not allow sexual love to be aroused too soon in the relationship. Have you ever um, looked at any of the product labels that you have in your home? One product label says, do not hold on the wrong end. That was on a warning label on a chainsaw. <laughs> Another one said, do not use while sleeping. That's for a hairdryer. Then, oh, you'll like this one. Do not drive with a sunshield in place. Really? And then another product, a food product said, this product contains eggs. It was an egg carton. <laughs> now, do you know why companies put these product warning labels on their products? Well, they do that, one, because they're foreseeing danger that some person is going to get himself or herself into without a warning. Uh, a second reason is they are protecting themselves from a lawsuit and the eventuality of that. And number three, there are actually people who have made these mistakes. What kind of thinking... <laughs> What kind of thinking would lead you to hold a chainsaw on the wrong end? I don't understand. But apparently there have been people that have done that. Listen, <coughs> what you find in the biblical text about God's moral standards is that you find a product warning label. You were not made by God to involve yourself sexually before or outside marriage, period. You're begging for a lot of unhappiness if you do. And then you were made for the purposes of Jesus Christ, which involve large doses of holiness and grace. And then God wants to lead and direct your life in such a way that when you meet him at the judgment, it's not a horrible day. It's a happy day. And that is why he slaughtered his son at the cross and executed him there. That's how much God loves you. And if you could yield and trust this God because of his son with your eternity, can't you trust him with your dating decisions and your marriage? Surely you can. You may say, well, I've blown it. What do I do? Well, let me end with just a couple of questions. One is a why question. If you are habitually attracted or habitually date people without character, why? Have you stopped to ask the question? Let's talk about that. Why do you keep getting involved with people that lack the kind of character outlined in Song of Solomon 1 and 2? What's going on? It could be there's a wound in your soul and you've beaten yourself down so far or others have that you don't think that you are sophisticated enough or capable enough of dating someone that's decent. Is that it? And so what you do is that you end up elevating another person and making them out to be much better than what they really are. It's time to get that taken care of. It's time to break the cycle.
and quit making foolish decisions. The second question, what? If a dating partner and his or her parents evaluated you, what would be their evaluation of you? I've cast your eyes on future dating partners and others. Okay? But you have to understand, there's someone that is probably thinking about you as well. What would be his or her and the parents' evaluation of you? Listen, long before you ever find the right one, be the right one. Before you ever find anyone of character, make sure you have a character to present, and that can happen because of Christ. Now, we didn't open up the doors this morning to make you feel condemned. It's not it at all. But around here, you're going to hear truth. Sometimes it's a little sharp. What I want to do is point you to some hope that you can start again if you've messed up somewhere along the way. Abraham made an awful lot of mistakes in his life and sinned grievously. And, you know, aren't you glad you're not Abraham? His sins are recorded on the pages of Scripture. We've been reading about them 3,500 years. And we know about them. And some of them were sexual in nature. But in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him for righteousness. That's repeated several times in the New Testament for how that we're made right with God. We believe the Lord and it is accounted to us as righteousness. In other words, we trust God's promise in Jesus Christ by faith and then God in return gives us righteousness. You come before God and say, God, I have nothing but an embarrassing past. Oh, there's some high points, but boy, there's some low points too. And I'm ashamed. I don't have any righteousness. I can't be right with you. And God says, well, do you have any faith in my son? And you say, yes. And God says, I'll take that. You may not have had a pure past. God doesn't expect that. He doesn't require it to get right with him. We couldn't give it to him anyway. We don't have it. What he requires is faith. And when you place faith in him, he takes that as if you have a righteous past. And he cleanses all of that. That is the hope and the promise of the good news of Christ. And if you'll open up your heart today and express that to him, God will make you right with him. Let's stand together real quickly and let's pray about it. Father, I pray in Jesus' wonderful name that you will help friends to trust you today. And I pray that they will feel the impulse and the movement of your Holy Spirit in doing that very thing. Would you come through and help marvelously today as we give it to you now? Now, we're going to sing a song in just a moment. And when we do, why don't you come?